Welcome to Healthcare Ethics and Law. In today's video, we're going to look at the Mental Capacity Act 2005. Um, we're going to look at how it came to being, what the objectives of it are, and also look at the five founding principles of the Act. So the Mental Capacity Act relates to a person's ability or capacity to function and to make a particular decision at a particular time. But before we look at this in a bit more detail, what I want to do is initially take a step back and to look at the importance of this Act and why it came into being. So traditionally the law identified that in many cases those with mental disorders would have a limited capacity to make decisions themselves. So if we look at this in a medical or dental context, this could mean that a treatment won't be consented to by a patient owing to this lack of capacity. So when we do this, we, we make decisions in their best interest, but this does deprive them of their autonomy or ability to make decisions. Uh, and we have to defend or uh, explain this using what we call justified paternalism. And so paternalism essentially can be defined as any act which the patient hasn't consented to, and in some cases even asked for, but is provided with intention so that they don't come to any harm. And in our liberal society, autonomy is promoted, something that's reflected in medical ethics. So really, these paternalistic measures are seen as a last resort to protect people, uh, and in ethics this is known as the harm principle. So the Mental Capacity Act acknowledges that we can make decisions on someone's behalf, should they lack capacity. But what it does is it sets out a series of safeguards to make sure that this is only done in really exceptional circumstances and in the best interest of the patient. So it has five guiding principles, which we're going to look through one by one. The first principle states that person is assumed to have capacity unless it is established that they lack capacity. So that's a really important principle and something that we should take really seriously. Effectively this acts as a safeguard to depriving someone of their liberty who is incorrectly deemed to be lacking capacity without justification. So again this helps us to protect individuals from unjustified paternalistic interventions which we discussed. The second principle states that a person is not to be treated as unable to make a decision unless all practical steps to help them do so have been taken without success. So what this means is that we need to try to help and uh, support that individual in making a decision. And that can involve unconventional methods of communication, such as using pictures to explain the procedure to the patient. The third principle says that a person is not to be treated as unable to make a decision merely because they make an unwise decision. 
So essentially, even if we don't agree that the decision the patient is making is right for them, or even right at all, we have to allow them to, to make this unwise decision. And if they have capacity, then again, we can't interfere with their decision-making process. A recent example of this was seen just this week at the Court of Protection, which ruled that a patient was allowed to refuse life-saving treatment um, as they did not want to be left with a stoma bag following, following the treatment. So whilst this decision would result in their death, the judge felt that ultimately, because they had capacity, we had to respect their decision. So if we think that a patient does have capacity, lack capacity, and this has been shown, then we need to apply the final two principles of the five. So principle four says that an actual decision made under this act or on behalf of a person who lacks capacity must be done in their best interest. So in other words, if we think that someone doesn't have capacity, we need to establish what would be in their best interest as conceived by themselves. So what this means is if they had capacity, what would they deem themselves as in their best interest? There's a number of ways to, to look at this, for example, holding a best interest meeting, and you can discuss this with family, friends, carers. Sometimes they have a, an appointed lasting power of attorney, known as a health and welfare attorney. Uh, and if necessary, if the patient doesn't have anyone you can call upon to find out what their, their wishes might have been, you can always contact a mental capacity advocate. It's also important to note that you should try to involve the patient in these discussions. Even though ultimately they won't be making the decision, you should make an effort to make them feel involved and to try and get some insight into their wishes as much as possible. Because that may guide you in terms of what treatment you then advocate going forwards. And then the final uh, principle of the Mental Capacity Act states that before an act is done, all the decision is made, regard must be had to whether the purpose for which it is needed can be as effectively achieved in a way that is least restrictive of the person's rights or freedoms. So what we need to do is make sure that any action or anything we do doesn't impose uh, or overimpose on the individual's rights and freedoms. We should do as little as possible um, in these situations. Uh, this could be, again, an example is if a patient's temporarily lost capacity. For example, if someone comes to your clinic and they're drunk, what we should do is the least invasive procedure until they've sobered up and regained their capacity. In summary, the Mental Capacity Act aims to place safeguards on depriving individuals of their capacity to consent for medical interventions. The Act is based on five principles which aim to protect patients' autonomy and to make sure that we act in patients' best interests. So I now want to briefly introduce what's known as the two-stage mental capacity test, which is advocated within the Mental Capacity Act. So whenever we suspect that someone lacks capacity, in line with the first principle of the Mental Capacity Act, 
we should assume that they have capacity unless shown otherwise. So in these cases, the burden of proof of someone lacking capacity is on the clinician to prove. The patient themselves does not have to prove that they have or lack capacity. The Mental Capacity Act also says that we are just assessing whether a person has the capacity to make the decision we are asking them to make. In other words, they only need to have capacity to make a specific decision at a specific time. And that's incredibly important to note. So the first part of this test is known as the functional test. And this looks at whether the patient is unable to make a decision for themselves. This aspect requires proof that the person has a permanent or temporary impairment of the mind or brain due to an impairment or disturbance in the functioning of the brain. Now the Mental Capacity Act gives examples of this, such as patients with dementia, those with significant learning disabilities, or long-term effects of brain damage. The second part of the two-stage mental capacity test is known as a diagnostic test, which considers whether, owing to this impairment of the mind or brain, whether the patient has or lacks capacity to make decisions for themselves. Firstly, the patient needs to understand the information relevant to the decision, such as risks and benefits. They need to then be able to retain that information. Thirdly, they need to be able to use or weigh up that information in the decision-making process. And fourthly, they need to be able to communicate their decision back to you. Again, it's important to facilitate and help the patient make a decision as much as reasonably possible. Once you've conducted the two-stage mental capacity test, it's also important to document your findings if you feel that the patient lacks capacity, you need to document why you think this is and which specific aspects of the test you think they failed on. For example, was it their understanding, their ability to communicate, and so on. In summary, the Mental Capacity Act aims to safeguard the deprivation of an individual's capacity to consent for a treatment. This is based on the five principles which we saw in part one. When we think a patient lacks capacity, we need to test and justify this. One way which we can do this is using the Mental Capacity Act test which we've seen today. For more information on the Mental Capacity Act, and for a whole host more resources, head over to our website, healthcareethicsandlaw.co.uk.